We're going to be looking this afternoon at Article 25 of the Belgic Confession. So let's turn there for a moment and read through that article. We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law ceased at the coming of Christ and that all the shadows are accomplished so that the use of them must be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of them remain with us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have their completion. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken out of the law and the prophets to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel and to regulate our life in all honorableness to the glory of God, according to his will. So, uh, brothers and sisters, I suppose that the first question which uh, occurs in connection with this article of the Belgian Confession is why would the author of the confession include in a relatively brief confession an article on the abolishing of the ceremonial law. It hardly seems to stand on a level, for example, with the doctrine of Revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrines of justification and sanctification which we find in earlier parts of the article. But I think the answer to that is probably twofold. In the first place, uh, at the time of the Reformation, the uh, Church of Rome had adorned, or perhaps we could better say corrupted, the worship of God with many, many ceremonies. Ceremonies that probably, especially since they were administered under the hand of a false priesthood, uh, resembled somewhat the worship of the Old Testament to the eyes of people in those days, perhaps more than even now. And uh, so the confession is probably addressing that problem, that this kind of ceremonial worship, which the uh, Church of Rome had instituted over many years was really contrary to the scriptures, to the teaching of the scriptures, that while God taught his people and led them in the way of salvation by all kinds of ceremonies in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, those ceremonies are finished and God teaches his people primarily by his word. So that's probably one reason why we find the article here. But probably the other reason is that I think there's intended also to be a relationship of this article with the preceding article. In the preceding article, there's outlined for us the idea of sanctification, as we saw last week, the first few lines of that article, and the relationship between justification and sanctification. But what's not entered into in that article is how is it that we know how God wants us to live in the New Testament? Or in what does our sanctification consist? And this article then would give us the answer to that question that we sanctify ourselves by uh, seeking the help of God in obeying his commandments. That's especially stated in the last part of the article. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken out of the law and the prophets to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel 
and to regulate our life in all honorableness to the glory of God. There are, I think, then, three points which this article makes. The first is, of course, that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have been abolished by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second of the points made in this article is that nevertheless the truth and substance of these ceremonies remains in Christ. And thirdly, that we use the testimonies taken from the Law and the Prophets to confirm us in the doctrine of the Gospel and to regulate our lives. We generally today divide the Law of God in the Old Testament into three parts. We have, first of all, of course, the moral law given to us in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And God himself set apart this moral law, the Ten Commandments, by writing them on the two tables of stone and giving those tables to Moses to to put into the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the most holy place in the tabernacle of the testimony. So that's the first part of the law. And that part of the law we... uh, would all be agreed, I think, is fully applicable to us today. The second part of the law is what we call the civil law. And this civil law consists of all those commandments found in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy especially, that have to do, or had to do especially, with Israel's ordinary life as the people of God in the land of promise. You find an example of this kind of civil law in um, Exodus 21, verses 2 and following. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. And there's further explanation in the verses that follow So here's a a law that says that the Israelites may not enslave fellow Israelites for longer than seven years. At the end of seven years, these slaves, these Israelite slaves, must be released. And there were many other such laws for Israel in Old Testament times, laws which had to do with their ordinary life, their day-to-day life in the land of promise and as the people of God. And as we're talking about these laws, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about them, as we're talking about these laws, I think we should probably understand that there's not really a sharp division between the civil law and what we're going to talk about later, the ceremonial law, nor even between the civil law and the moral law. The Uh, Civil law then falls into uh, various categories as far as we are concerned and as far as our use of it is concerned. For example, we can go to some of the civil laws in the Old Testament and we can say those laws uh, transferred directly to us in the Old Testament. Those laws really partake of the 
character of explanations of the Ten Commandments or applications of the Ten Commandments. And those various civil laws are as applicable to us today as they were to the people of Israel. We can think, for example, of the laws about sexual immorality as applying directly to us in the New Testament, the laws against bestiality and against adultery and and so on. All of these laws were laws that are uh, as true today for us as they were for Israel in the Old Testament. And we simply take these uh, civil laws then as explanations and applications of the Ten Commandments to our own lives today as well. But then there are also certain of those Old Testament laws that we look at and we say this is not really applicable to us any longer today. For example, one of the uh, laws that Israel had to live by in the Old Testament was not plowing with an ox or a donkey and a donkey together, not yoking an ox and a donkey together and plowing with them. And um, we would say, well, that's not really relevant to us today. There's nothing that we have to be concerned about in the law as it stands. But the law illustrates for us, nevertheless, as the Apostle Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 6, a very important point of God's rules for the life of his people, and that is that we must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul takes that law about not plowing with an ox and donkey together, and he says, what that law really means for us today is don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? And so the the relevance of the law is not in the law itself, but rather in a principle which the law uh, is intended to point us to. Or we might take, for example, the law that required the Israelites to put a parapet on the roofs of their houses. And that's a, a law, I think, that is applicable in a sense to us, in the sense that we have a responsibility not just to refrain from doing harm to our neighbor, but are responsible to protect the life of our neighbor. But as far as putting a parapet on our roofs, that's not necessary. We don't have those living spaces on our roofs as they did in those days. So you have these different categories. Some of those laws we simply say, well, those were peculiar to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They don't really, they're not really applicable to us any longer. They may, however, illustrate a point of the law, a significant point of the law, which we should be talking about and understanding. Paul takes another one of these laws, not muzzling the ox that treads out the corn, and he uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he says with regard to it, does God take care for oxen? He's saying God was not particularly concerned with oxen in that commandment. He was much more concerned with men, and the principle which 
is illustrated by that law is that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And Paul takes that principle of the law and he applies it to preachers of the gospel. And he says the preachers of the gospel are worthy of earning a wage from their work. So you have this, this civil law, which we have to use, I think, to illustrate for ourselves the scope and application of the law of God to us, for us in the New Testament, but we can't just carry it over wholesale from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Some of it comes over directly, other parts of it are illustrations of biblical principles, others are much more perhaps ceremonial in character and therefore have been fulfilled uh, as other ceremonies were fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that then brings us to the third part of the law, the ceremonial part, the part of the law with which this article of the Confession is concerned. And these ceremonies are, have to do especially with Israel's worship. The ceremonies of, for example, circumcision, the observance of the feast days, the sacrifices uh, required by the law, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and, and uh, the sin offerings and so on, and the uh, cleansings, the various cleansings required by the law. All of these different ceremonies which the people of God were required to perform in connection especially with the worship of God. You find many of them, of course, in the book of Leviticus. Now these ceremonies were of such a character that they pointed the people of Israel to spiritual realities in the New Testament. And God established them for the express purpose of pointing to these spiritual realities in the New Testament. He uh, established the bloody sacrifices, for example, as uh, symbols of the bloody sacrifice which our Lord Jesus Christ made by offering himself on the cross. And he established the ceremony of circumcision as a sign of the circumcision of our hearts, a bloody sign of the circumcision of our hearts. And he established the feast days to point to Christ our Passover and to show us in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for example, the necessity of putting away the old leaven of sin, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. These ceremonies all then were symbolical ceremonies, ceremonies that pointed to spiritual realities of the New Testament and were meant to instruct the people of God prophetically then in the work of Christ, the work which he has now accomplished on his cross. That work of Christ having been completed the uh, catechism or the confession says those ceremonies must now cease. Christ has fulfilled them in his work and those ceremonies must cease. Now I think we've already pointed out that there was a reason, a couple of reasons probably for including this article in the confession 
at the time that the confession was written, but I think it's important even for us today to recognize this. Not only over against the the Church of Rome and its continuing very ceremonial kind of worship, but also because there are many Protestants today who have made some kind of return to these ceremonies of the law. There are the Messianic Jews, for example, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who seem intent on observing at least some of the ceremonies of the law. The feast days, for example, probably also the rite of circumcision. They want a continuance of at least some of the ceremonies of the law for Christians in the New Testament period. And there are also Gentile Christians, as we all know, who expect the temple and the sacrifices and so on to be restored. And they view the Jews as a people who are really separate from Gentile Christians, and the church, the Gentile church, as really an interlude between God's dealings with the Jews in the Old Testament and God's still to come dealings with the Jews before the end of this world. And increasingly even, I think we find today that there are Christians who um, observe the feast days. There are Christians, for example, who celebrate the Passover. Now maybe they do that just out of curiosity to to, uh, see sort of what the, the Passover was like, what it was like in the Old Testament to Um, live under that law of the Passover, but I think we should recognize a danger in that. This is, um, the danger is, I think, that this may become a tradition for Christians. And as we all should know, traditions sometimes become laws to the point that people think that they have to do things this way, or if not that they have to do them that it's at least better to do them this way. And so it may well be that this kind of practice leads to a return, a kind of obligatory return, to the observance of these feast days. We see it, I think, in the importance that many Christians attach to Easter and and Christmas. Many Christians, I think, who would uh, who view those days as really the most important days of the year. They're not even days that God requires us to observe. And yet they would attach to those days such an importance that they would exalt them above the observance of the Lord's Day, according to the fourth commandment. So there's dangers for us today about this ceremonial law too. Christ, however, has brought these ceremonies to an end. They must cease. We must not practice circumcision as an obligation laid on us by the law of God. We must not practice uh, the Passover, observe the Passover as an obligation which God lays upon us. We must not return to the Old Testament law. 
They have no place in the worship of God's people. And I think in a very real way, the practice of these things is a denial of the fulfilling work of our Lord Jesus Christ. To observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is in practice, even if they, they would deny it, the, those who observe the Passover, is in practice a denial that Christ is our Passover and that his blood saves us from the wrath of God. To require circumcision is to deny that the seed of the woman has come and that he has circumcised our hearts and written his law upon our hearts. We must not, therefore, continue the practice of them lest we fall under the condemnation of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Paul was writing against those Judaizers who wanted to bind New Testament Christians to the practice of of the law in the Old Testament. And he says, you must not return again to the bondage of the law. You have been freed from that bondage by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So he said, don't continue the observance of those ceremonies. Christ has fulfilled them. That's the first point. The spiritual realities are present now. The the old types and shadows must cease. The second point is very closely then related to the first point, and that second point is that the substance then of those ceremonies remains. Christ has completed or fulfilled those ceremonies in such a way as to establish the realities to which those symbols and types and shadows Pointed. It's not then that circumcision itself has ceased, but that only the circumcision of the flesh has ceased. The circumcision of the heart has been established by Christ. It's not that sacrifices have ceased. Christ has shed his blood once for all, and no more blood must be shed for sin. But still we offer, as Hosea 12, I think it is, says, the calves of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the sacrifices continue, 
But not in their old physical and symbolical form, they continue in their spiritual form. The priesthood also continues, that Old Testament priesthood has been replaced not only by the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, but by the priesthood of believers, all believers in the New Testament. For we are a royal priesthood by the anointing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The temple has been replaced by the church of the living God, the place in which God dwells. And all this because the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah lives and reigns forever at the right hand of God. The law was, as Paul says, a schoolmaster to bring the Old Testament saints to Christ. He talks about that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, excuse me, I got the wrong chapter. Galatians 4, not 5. Which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants. Still have the wrong chapter, I'm sorry. Misreading my notes as well as picking the wrong chapter out of the out of the scriptures here. Uh, Galatians 3, 24 and 5. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And he says it again in Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And of course, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that when Christ came, he brought something better than what the people of God had in the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews talks about a better revelation God has spoken to us by His Son. A better and heavenly sanctuary. A better covenant and better promises. A better priesthood. The high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, it points us to the fact that in the Old Testament the people of God were kept from entering the tabernacle and the most holy place by the veil that stood between, was hung between the holy place and the most holy place. And it it says Christ has torn that veil away and opened the way into the most holy place for all his people so that we can enter the heavenly sanctuary with him. We don't want them to take those Old Testament ceremonies and symbols and set them alongside these spiritual realities as if they have as much value as the spiritual realities and as if we are somehow in need of those Old Testament ceremonies still when we have the spiritual realities. We have something much better than those old ceremonies. We have our Lord Jesus Christ who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. We have better things than those. 
The substance, therefore, of the ceremonies remains in the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look to that rather than to the ceremonies of the Old Testament. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. But our Lord Jesus Christ has done so. And has brought us to the very throne of grace. Through his own great high priestly work. So that's the second point then. The ceremonies continue in their substance. Though not in their old shadowy form. And the third point which the confession makes then is that we still use the testimonies taken from the law. We still use them. And they, confession gives us two ways in which we use them. We use them to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel, and we use them to regulate our lives. Let's look at each of those points separately. We look we use them, first of all, to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel. What the confession is basically saying here is that in the Old Testament, God did not have a different way of salvation for his people. The way was the same. It's the way of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It's the way of uh, justification by faith and sanctification by the power of the Spirit. It's the way of grace just as for us in the New Testament. Everything's essentially the same between Old Testament and New Testament. But, while the people of God in the Old Testament waited for the promises of God to be fulfilled, they were like children. Children who didn't have a a power of understanding, such as we have by the work of the Spirit and who needed to be under tutors and governors and and school teachers to lead them to Christ, who needed all those ceremonies then to illustrate for them the truth of the gospel. And so when we study the Old Testament, we, we look to see in the Old Testament Christ, and we look to see in the Old Testament Christ in a much more clear way, I think, than the Old Testament saints even did. We, we see in the Uh, testimonies of the Old Testament and the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Christ, our Passover. Christ, our King. Christ, our High Priest. Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see how in those ceremonies God was working with His people in the same way that He works with us today. And we even see in those ceremonies then the illustrations and symbols that help our minds understand these spiritual realities. For us, we might say that these these ceremonies are kind of like parables. They give us earthly symbols and earthly pictures of heavenly and spiritual realities. We don't practice them, but we look at what the people of God did and we understand Christ in them. And they help to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel. We, we see how wonderfully also God worked for his people in the Old Testament to save them by the promise of 
Christ, the seed of the woman, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We therefore glorify the wisdom of God in these things. But also, I think, we have to understand that when we talk in the New Testament, in terms that are very common to us today, that Christ is our sacrifice, that Christ is the Lamb of God, that the church is the temple of God, we would have no way of understanding those concepts unless we understood the ceremonies of the law. All of those things point us back to the law. The more we understand the ceremonies of the law, the more we understand how Christ has fulfilled all those ceremonies of the law, how he has uh, cleansed us spiritually as lepers were cleansed in the Old Testament and their cleansing then acknowledged by the priests, how he has paid the price for our sins as the blood of the animals sacrificed made atonement for the Israelites and so on. The better we understand the law, the better we understand what Christ has done. The second point that the confession makes is that we use this law to regulate life for the honor of God. Clearly, the confession is not saying, after all, we do practice the ceremonies. They regulate our lives in that sense. But we all acknowledge that we are bound by the Ten Commandments. And as we've already been saying, we acknowledge that the civil law is applicable to us and that we can learn certain things about the Ten Commandments from the civil law. And even with regard to the ceremonial law, there's a certain sense, I think, limited sense, in which we can say that regulates our lives. Let me just see if I can illustrate that from the last few verses of Exodus chapter 20. Very much there, a ceremonial law. God uh, explains to his people there about the uh, nature of the altars they are to use to worship him. Exodus 20, verses 24 and following, an altar of earth you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. And especially that last thing, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. There's the idea of of reverence for God and the fear of God and not exposing the nakedness of our sins, but rather having them covered by the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or the altar of burnt offering, standing in front of the tabernacle and teaching us that we cannot draw near to God except through the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we have confession of sin very early in our worship services. We know that it's impossible for us to come to God, to enter into his presence, 
except by the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ, the great burnt offering for us. So even the ceremonial law, in a certain sense, a limited sense, regulates our lives, teaches us that reverence that is due to God from us and that uh, that way of salvation that is necessary for us to come into his presence. So the whole law is useful, and, and the more we understand that law, the more we will appreciate it and be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord, it is my meditation all the day. God has given that Old Testament law in the scriptures for our instruction and admonition. He reveals himself and our Savior in that law, in the ceremonies of the law. And we need to understand that law, to understand God's work of salvation for us in Christ and how great is what he has done for us in Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 points us, I think, in that direction as well. Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. May God bless us with his word.